Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Well, uh, I want to start this morning, what, what are some of the things that you maybe have done in your life to cure or to remedy different ailments that you've had? Um, you know, I had a cold this past week, and so how many of you, do you ever do the nose spray thing? Do you know what I'm talking about? The neti bottle where you like put the solution in, and then you squeeze it in your nose, and it should pour out the other nose, nostril, not the other, you only have one nose, <laughs> more than one nostril. Yeah, I did that this last week. I was all stuffed up, and I squeezed, and it, it, didn't, it sprayed all over the mirror instead of coming out. And um, we do all kinds of crazy things, right, for, to remedy our, our ailments. And, you know, not so long ago, people did some pretty strange things. Do you know, if you suffer from rheumatoid arthritis, uh, in the late 1800s, it was very common. What they would prescribe for you is to sit in a whale carcass. I have a picture for us here of it. There should be a picture there, I think. Uh, a whale carcass for 30 hours. Yeah, you sit in that whale carcass for 30 hours and it should remedy you of your rheumatoid arthritis for, they would say, up to a year. So, um, so there is a guy in there, hey? Do you see him? I think that's just a blob of something. But uh, uh, anyway, um, that was the late 18, the 1890s, they were still doing this. How many of you have ever had a bug bite? Well, what do you do if you have a bug bite? Um, what do you do? You fill a bathtub with vinegar, they would say, and then you have a bath in the, in the vinegar, and it supposedly relieves a lot of the, um, the itchiness. It also wards off most bugs, they say, because you smell so much like vinegar after, and it wards off probably all the people around you as well. So, um, so that's probably why that kid was, he's not in a tub of vinegar, but I'm sure that's how you would feel if you were sitting in a tub of vinegar. How many, have you ever had a toothache? Anybody here ever had a toothache? For children, yeah, yeah, okay, Cocaine toothache drops. Cocaine toothache drops. This was as recent as the late 1800s that they were still doing this, almost into the 1900s that they were giving children cocaine drops. Weird. Okay, what about an earache? Maybe you've had an earache. There's lots of, here's some different remedies that you can try. If you ever get an earache, um, you could stuff your ear with a moist wad of chewing tobacco. That's one option. And if you don't chew tobacco, then find someone that does and then get it from them and stick it in your ear. The other option, if that didn't work, is plug your ear with warm bacon. I mean, that just sounds good anyway, doesn't it? A lot of you guys are like, honey, I got an earache again. <laughs> right? Plug your ear with warm bacon. My favorite is the last, the last one here that I found here, if you've got an earache, is just try putting a few drops of urine in your ear. Yeah, and um, it'll cure your ear, but you'll always hear a toilet flushing all the time. It'll just sound like... Right? And we laugh at these remedies, but do you know what? In 2023, 
Canada spent $344 billion on healthcare. $344 billion on healthcare. And fortunately, I think most of the healthcare were not those kinds of strange remedies that we just talked about, but, or old wives' tales. But, but I wonder, what, would you, what, what lengths would you go to to be remedied of some sort of ailment? What would you do to be free of something? What would you be willing to do? Um, you know, maybe to do whatever it takes to be free of something. Well, this morning, we're going to be finishing Mark chapter 5. And uh, we're going to meet two people that will do whatever it takes for a miracle. As we see them humble themselves before Jesus. We're actually going to see three keys about faith in the passage as we look at these miracles. And we're going to see that Jesus has healing in his wings. Why don't you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be in some of the seats around you a Bible that you can follow along with. We'll be reading and studying from the English Standard Version this morning. And, uh, but let's take a moment and pray before we look at our passage this morning. Mark chapter 5. We're going to be beginning at verse 21 of Mark chapter 5. Well, Father, uh, this morning I just... Um, I thank you that we don't have to do weird stuff. We don't have to jump through weird hoops to get to you. I thank you that through the work that Jesus Christ has done, that we have direct access to your throne. That, Father, uh, we, many in this room, as we have already prayed this morning, need miracles. And I thank you, God, that, that the miracles come through Christ, not through our efforts, not through our weirdness, but through what Jesus has done. It's, in fact, by his wounds, by his stripes, we're told that we are healed. And I pray, Father, this morning, as we look at this passage, that you would teach us. I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you, Jesus, that it changes and transforms us, that it shapes us to look more like you. And this morning, may you teach us, Lord. Teach us from your word. Help us to grow as we talk about faith. Help us to, to grow in a greater understanding of, of what our faith looks like in you. Bless our time now, I pray. Amen. All right, the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that faith works while all else fails. So beginning in chapter 5 of Mark, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she be made, may be made well and live. Well, Jairus, we're told, is a ruler of the synagogue. This would be a very well-respected, uh, a very um, highly esteemed man among the Jews. Very orthodox in his faith and his beliefs. Very religious man. He would have been wealthy. He would have been powerful. He would have been a man of privilege even in his community. And his life and his religion really, as the ruler of the synagogue, would have been devoted to living by the law of Moses, really as a means of, of developing his own righteousness and his own right standing before God. But we're actually going to see this morning that his religion and his position hadn't actually helped him in the cause with his daughter. In fact, it was very likely that this actually kept him away from Jesus, being the ruler of the synagogue and being this man of, of high esteem in the community. Notice that we're told in the text here that, that she was at the point of death. Did you notice that the text told us that? In fact, other gospels, other gospels tell us that, in fact, she'd already died by the time Jairus is actually coming to Jesus to say, please help me, my daughter's dead. I mean, why would you wait so long to the point that your daughter, your child, is almost dead or dead? It's probably because, well, Jesus 
is on the most wanted list at this point. And he's on the most wanted list amongst the group of people that Jairus belonged to. As a ruler of the synagogue, he would rub shoulders regularly with the religious leaders. He would, he would be a person that would organize on the Sabbath who would be speaking in the synagogue and the different teachers and rabbis that would come in. He was, basically, he was hand-in-hand hand with the religious leaders. In fact, some commentators think that perhaps Jairus was the ruler of the synagogue. If you remember earlier in Mark, when Jesus healed the, the, the man with the withered hand, and do you remember how the religious leaders got really furious about that? Because, of course, Jesus did something good at the wrong time on the Sabbath, right? And so, so they, got, they got really angry at Jesus, put him on the most wanted list. They, at that point, go, we, we're going to have to figure out a way to kill him. And it's interesting because some of the commentators think that perhaps he was even the ruler of that synagogue that Jesus did this miracle in, that got him into all this hot water. And so by coming to Jesus, Jairus is potentially, he's throwing away his job security, He's throwing away potentially his position, his reputation, and his credibility. But you know this. There comes a point in life when your religion can't help you. Your group of friends can't help you. The, the people that are powerful in your life can't help you. Only Jesus can help, right? And you know this, that as a parent, if you are a parent here this morning, you will do anything for your child, won't you? You'll do anything for one of your children. And so what does Jairus do? He climbs essentially over his pride and he falls before Christ, humbles himself and pleads Jesus for her miracle. I like what Damien Kyle says. He says, when your religion fails you, Jesus will never fail you. When your theology fails you, Jesus will never fail you. When your church fails you, Jesus will never fail you. The reality is, is that all of those things can fail us. They truly can. This man's religion, his theology, which was his way of relating to God, had failed him. It hadn't helped in his daughter's healing. But Jesus could help him. Jesus would not fail. You know, for us, religion, obviously, in the West looks a little different than perhaps it did in first century, you know, uh, Judaism, right? We're not Jews. We, we, don't, we don't practice Judaism. And so in the West, I think sometimes our religion, if you want to put it that way, if you're a Christian, it can turn into more of something that I call churchianity. You just kind of show up at church. That's your religion. That's, that, I'm a good person. I go to church. We see this a lot with Catholicism, right? They just, they, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a good Catholic. I go, you know, or, or, or a lot of the CEO Christians that we have, the Christmas, Easter only Christians, right? Or, or in the West, maybe it's a little different. Maybe it's just not even, I think we've, we know that we're actually in a post-Christian culture and society now. We're beyond that. In fact, the majority of people, I think the religion now that most people in the West uh, would walk in is probably atheism. And if it's not atheism, it's probably, you know, maybe humanism or science, right? All different things. But there's, the reality is this, is that everybody is counting on something. Everybody's building their life on something. And it's often, it's often when they realize that their religion can't help them that they end up coming to Christ when all else fails. And I think the question we need to ask is this, why wait so long? Why did Jairus wait so long? Why do so many of us wait so long? Why do so many people we know wait so long and never come to Jesus? And I want to encourage you this morning, don't make Jesus, don't make prayer a last resort. Make Jesus the first place that you go. Because the thing is this, you got to understand, Jesus is willing. He's willing. Look at verse 24. And he went with him. Jairus comes and he begs Jesus potential enemy of Jesus. Jesus, can you help me? And what does Jesus do? Yeah, he goes with him. You just got to ask. 
Then we continue reading. It says this, And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Absolutely horrible suffering. Uh, Commentators point out it it was likely a menstrual issue. So imagine, if you will, having your period, if you're a woman, obviously, every day, every week, for 12 years straight. Horrible, horrible suffering that this woman would have suffered physically, but not just physical suffering, but social suffering, emotional suffering, even spiritual suffering. You see, in the law, in Leviticus chapter 15, it laid it out very clearly that this woman was unclean. She was unclean. Anything and anybody that she touched would then become unclean. She was unclean. She was essentially like a leper of their day. She was unable to to, to worship at the temple or at the synagogue, which was the center for Jewish life. That's where all of life revolved around. She could not be a part of it. She would be completely ostracized from any of that stuff. It was like she had the cheese touch. If you've ever seen Diary of a Wimpy Kid, do you know what the cheese touch is? I think we've got a picture here for you of the cheese touch. The cheese touch, this was, uh, you know, and Diary of a Wimpy Kid, remember, you remember this now if you've seen the movie? Great movie if you've never seen it. Diary of a Wimpy Kid, it's a good one. Uh, the cheese touch, you know, and you get nuclear cooties. And it's like you, everybody just runs from you. That's essentially what this woman suffered from. The difference is, is that with the cheese touch, if you touch this, this disgusting cheese that was in the playground, uh, you could pass on to somebody else the cheese touch and you'd be rid of it. The problem was is that this woman, if she tried to pass it on, she would be unclean and so would the other person she touched. So it's even beyond the cheese touch. It's worse than nuclear cooties. She was a total outcast. She was totally cut off from worship of God and her entire community. Essentially, she was bleeding to death. You know, the law even actually allowed that her, if she was married, allowed her husband to divorce her because of this issue. So it's very likely that she was isolated and totally humiliated. She suffered physically. She suffered spiritually. She suffered emotionally. She even suffered financially. Look at verse 26. And she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Everything, all of it gone. You think healthcare is expensive today? Nothing's new. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Healthcare's always been expensive. She spent everything. 2,000 years ago, she spent everything. See, Jewish doctors, they had all kinds of strange remedies and superstitious tricks for this issue of bleeding. In the Talmud, the Talmud is, is basically the, um, the Jewish interpretation of the law. It's, it's how you would live out the law of God, the, the practices and the things that you would do. And in that Talmud, there was 11 different cures that were prescribed if you had an issue with continuous bleeding. All kinds of different weird things. My personal favorite is this one. You carry a, a barley corn that was found in the poop of a white female donkey. Not a word of a lie. This is in the Talmud. And this is what they would do. They would sell these barley corns to these people. So she had used up all her money and nothing had helped. In fact, it had only gotten worse. And I just want to ask you to think about this this morning. I, have you ever felt spent? Have you ever felt spent like you've, you've given everything you can to be free? And maybe you're at the end of yourself. That's where this woman was. Notice this, that religion had failed Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Notice that doctors, science, the community had failed this woman with the issue of blood. There was no one else and there was nowhere else to turn but Jesus. And I wonder, you know what, is that maybe you this morning? Is that you? Because here's the thing, is that no matter how you come to Christ, whatever brings you to your knees, like we see with Jairus and with this woman, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters is that you come. Come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Because when all else fails, 
Faith in Christ works. Because here's the thing. This is the second thing we're going to learn about faith. Faith is about the object it is in. Okay? Faith is, it's not about the size of your faith. It's not about the quantity of how much faith you have or the quality even of your faith. Faith is all about the object that your faith is in. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now this woman, she had heard obviously about Jesus. The word had been spreading. We know this because the crowds of hundreds have now turned to thousands that are gathering around him. She'd heard obviously about the miracles that he'd been doing, the healings. She'd heard about the, the, the demons that had been set, released from people, cast out of people. And for some reason, she has this thought, if I only touch his garment, if I only touch his garment, it's interesting, Luke's gospel tells us specifically, she says, if I only touch the hem or the fringe or the tassel, it can be translated, of his garment. Now, is this woman superstitious? Does she have misplaced faith, perhaps? Or does this woman maybe know something that we don't know? Why would you just need to touch the fringe or the hem of his garment? Anybody want to investigate this morning? Anybody want to come with me for a little investigation? Okay, we got one person, two. Okay, we got three of you, four of you. This is great. Okay, all four of us are going to check it out. We're going to start in Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, verse 37 to 39. This is what we read. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. Some translations say on, the, um, on, on a tassel on the hem or the fringe, depending on the translation. Verse 39, And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So here's kind of the, the basic idea here. How many of you ever, ever tend to forget that God's way is the best way? Do, do any of you ever have that struggle sometimes in life where it's like, oh yeah, okay, I should have just done what God told me to do, and, right? You don't always follow his ways. And so what God does is he understands that we don't always have it forefront in our minds to follow his ways that are the best ways. And so what he did is he instructed Israel to attach tassels to the corners or to the fringes or to the hem of their garments. And it would be a reminder of God and his commands and to follow him and not their own ways. And so what Jews did then, and they do now, is they take tassels and they attach them to what is known as a, it's on their prayer shawls. So I borrowed this prayer shawl. This is Nancy Moore's prayer shawl. She had one. This is from Israel. In fact, I have the package that was mailed. It was mailed in from Israel that it came in. And so what they would do is they would attach, you see all these tassels. They would attach these tassels to the ends of this garment, to this prayer shawl. And it's, it's very specific, very specific what these tassels represent. Um, there's different, um, different ideas and words and names, but specifically was the number of tassels that they were to have on their shawl, their prayer shawl, their garment. They were to have 613 tassels. 600, there's 613 tassels hanging. I was going to count them, and I was like, forget that. I'm just going to just go with it, that there's 613 on there. So in total, there's 613 tassels, if this is a proper prayer shawl, 613 tassels. Why would there be 613? Yes, to remind them of the commands of God. Because, of course, God gave how many commands? 
613. He gave 10 commandments, right? We know that. There's the 10 commandments. Then God gave another 603 commandments to follow, for Israel to obey and to follow. And so they put 613 of these tassels on this to remind them of those commands. It's really interesting. Um, Hebrew, you can actually take numbers and you can assign them to, um, to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. The other interesting thing is that what this does is these tassels, it continually spells out Yahweh is one. Yahweh is one. If you numerically work out the Hebrew alphabet, it's really interesting, which of course is De- Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema, a very, very famous passage for the Jews, very uh, common passage. Um, what's interesting though is that verse 38 also tells us this, that the, the, the tassels were to have a cord of blue uh, on the corner ones. This one doesn't actually have a cord of blue, interesting enough, but it's supposed to be attached with a cord of blue onto the end of the, the, these four tassels on the outside corners. And the blue, of course, would remind them of heaven, right? Because you look up, you see a blue sky. It's the heavens is what you would think of. But more specifically, it was actually to remind them of the Messiah that would come from heaven. That was the point of attaching it with this blue thread. And what's very interesting is that the literal Hebrew, I think of the text is, yeah, it's, is in the literal Hebrew, if you have an interlinear Bible, which is like the direct translation of the Hebrew to English or the Greek to English, if it's the New Testament, um, the interlinear Bible literally says this. The literal Hebrew says, put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And then it says, and he, our Bible's translated as it. It becomes to you a tassel. It literally says in the Hebrew, he becomes to you a tassel. And when you see him, again, our Bible's translated as it, you will remember all the commands of the Lord. Well, who is he pointing to? Oh, you guys are good. You guys always know the answer. Well done. Jesus. Because the reality is this, is that nobody can fulfill all 613 of the laws of Moses, can they? Except Jesus. Jesus did. So we were to look to him to be the fulfillment of these commands, to be our tassel, so to say, the one that would live and follow out these commands. It's interesting as well, in the temple um, or in the synagogue, when the priest would stand and bless the people, they would stand like this with their prayer shawl open over the people, and they would declare, of course, the Aaronic blessing. I think it's in Numbers 8 that it's found. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Uh, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And every day that they were in the synagogue, they would proclaim this blessing over the people. Very interesting. What does it kind of look like when the, when the priest would do this? Does it look like anything in particular? There you go, wings. There you go. I had to give you a bit of a tip. <clears throat> it looks like wings, doesn't it? Someone said the cross. You could say that too. So here's the thing. All Jewish prayer shawls, then and now, have these tassels that are attached to, the, the, um, to, the, to the, the, the fringe or the hem of the shawl. And so the picture is really this. is In many ways, it pictures and symbolizes many things. You would be wrapped or you're engulfed in God, right, with his command surrounding you. Um, even you talk about, in the scriptures, it speaks about dwelling in his tent. Sometimes they pray. Oftentimes you'll see a Hebrew will pray with this over their head, and it makes like a little tent for them to, to be in. And all this significance. Now, what's interesting is the instruction to attach these tassels to the hem or the fringe of their garment or corner is a specific word in the Hebrew. The word in the Hebrew is kanoth, okay? Attach, they were instructed this, attach the tassels to the kanoth. Now, what's really interesting is that the word for wing in Hebrew, guess what the word for wing in Hebrew also is? Kanoth. It's the same word 
precisely. So you can actually go through the Old Testament and where it's translated as wing, it could very well be translated as hem or edge of garment or fringe. And so what it literally means is this. It literally means the outermost edge. That's what it means, outermost edge, such as a wing or such as a hem or a fringe of a garment. And so the Psalms give us all kinds of interesting pictures like this priest's blessing, Psalm 36, 7, Psalm 57, 1, Psalm 61, 4, 63, 7, 91, 4. All these Psalms speak about being covered or taking refuge in the shadow of his, his kanaf, his wings, in the shadow of his wings or his hem, in a sense. He's hemmed us in. What's really interesting is that the very last book of the Old Testament, God went silent after this for 400 years. Malachi chapter 4, the last chapter of that book has an interesting prophecy in verse 2. It says, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his, his kanaf, his wings, or hem, the hem or fringe of his garment. Isn't that kind of interesting? Well, who is the Son of Righteousness? It's interesting, depending on our translation, they capitalize son, capital S and R for righteousness. It's talking about, you guys always know the answer, Jesus. Well, guess what? Guess what the rabbis and Jewish tradition generally was surrounding this verse. They had this thought or this idea that when the Messiah comes, one of the ways that you're going to know that he is the Messiah is that there will be healing in his wings, in his kanaf, in his hem the edge of his prayer shawl. Isn't that interesting? So when this woman hears about Jesus, she hears all that's being reported about Jesus. What does she think? This is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. We know about the Messiah. There's some, there might be something about his prayer shawl. There'll be something up with his prayer shawl. I mean, it's interesting. You know what? It's interesting because if you look later in Mark chapter 6, You don't have to turn there now, but later in Mark chapter 6, you're going to see near the end of the chapter, it also talks about that people would just touch the hem of his garment and were healed. It continually happens. You see, I mean, this is crazy, but talk about faith that is literally hanging by a thread. Hey, do do you get that? Literally, and I'm not trying to be punny here or funny. This is seriously faith that is small. It's hanging by a thread because this is the key thing that we need to understand about faith. Faith is not, it's, it's not the size of our faith. It's not about the quantity of our faith. Faith is about the object that it is in. Here's the thing. You can have huge faith in anything or anyone. But if that thing or that person is weak, how strong is your faith? Well, your faith might be incredibly big and strong, but if they're weak, if they're nothing, your faith is useless, is it not? Think about the chairs that you sat on this morning. Vic, do you mind just closing those doors? Thanks. Think about the chairs that you're sitting on this morning. You could easily come in and have faith that that chair is going to hold you up, but you didn't know that I came and I cut the legs before you sat down. And you have great faith that this chair is going to hold you up, and then you sit on the chair and it all of a sudden falls over. You had great faith in the chair, did you not? Did you? Yeah, it's going to hold me up. But you sit in it and all of a sudden, whoa, your faith was great, but the object was weak. Do you see this? This is the key about faith. Faith is only as strong as the object it is in. And this woman literally had faith the size of a thread, maybe a little bit bigger than a mustard seed, maybe. 
But because it was in Christ, it could move mountains. You know, as I've said this before, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. That's the key about faith. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. And what happens when we have faith in Christ? Look at verse 29. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing. Literally in the Greek it says squashing or smothering. Right? They're like, you're, you're getting squished. What do you mean? They're all around you, pressing, smothering around you. And yet you say, who touched me? What are they saying here? Everybody touched you. Who hasn't touched you? Everyone's squishing you. He goes on, verse 32, and he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing, that had, sorry, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said, and he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. You know what we need to notice here? We need to notice that all kinds of people touched Jesus in that crowd. The disciples basically point that fact out. Who touched me? Well, everyone's touched you, basically. Everybody touched Jesus. Everybody pressed in on him. But who experienced a miracle? Just the woman. Only the person that touched Jesus in faith. And here's the thing we need to know is that we may throng around Jesus. We may press in and we may even get close at times, but if we don't touch him in faith, we miss out. You know, this is such a danger. I, you know, I'm a Christian, which I'm sure you're all happy to know. I'm a follower of Jesus. And I attend church just like the rest of you, week in, week out. I, I, I do the same thing, just like you do. Maybe not week in, week out, but... Um, but all I want to say is this, there's a danger in this is because I understand how easy it can be to just go to church to be part of the religious crowd, to be part of the religious throng that come around Jesus. And it becomes a habit and a ritual and a routine. And I'm not saying that that's bad. It's good to have healthy habits and healthy routines in our life, to be disciplined. There's good things about that. But there's a problem in the sense that we can just become a part of the crowd. And the danger is that we don't ever come with an expectation that I'm going to reach out by faith and I'm going to touch Jesus today. I'm going to meet with Jesus today. And when we don't come with that kind of expectation, all I'll say is this, your expectations will be met. That's the reality. You don't expect much, you're going to get what you expect. <laughs> and that's a danger that we can sink into the same kind of thing where we just throng and we just come around Jesus and we just blend in with all the other religious crowd. And we go day to day without truly meeting and touching Jesus. I mean, we can be in his presence, but if we don't come expecting, that's, that's all we get. And so finally we see this, that faith needs to be protected. Verse 35. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear only believe. Essentially, he's saying to them, listen, don't listen to them. Don't fear. They're telling you that she's dead. Don't fear. Only believe. The Greek actually says, keep on believing. Just keep on believing is what Jesus challenges him with. He basically says, you need to guard your faith. Be careful with, with what you listen to, with who you listen to. 
He goes on in verse 37, we read this, and he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. These are, of course, um, if you know who these guys, these three guys are, they're kind of known as the inner circle of Jesus. Uh, they're, they're kind of, we often think of them as his favorites. They were the ones that went up with him um, on the mountain, when the, the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the ones that get to witness this amazing thing. Um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, who does Jesus bring with him a little further into the garden? Peter, James, and John. And it's interesting because we think, this is just a side note, by the way, uh, we oftentimes think that Peter and James and John were this inner circle. And I had never thought of this. Uh, but something I read this week talked about how perhaps they weren't his favorites. Perhaps it was that he needed to keep an extra special eye on them. It's kind of like you've got 12 kids that you're responsible for, and nine of them, you're like, hey, you guys, go ahead, go play. You three, you're with me. <laughs> and I wonder a little bit if maybe that's what was happening with these Peter, James, and John. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, just that was a side note. Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. See, in those days, uh, you would hire, literally, they would actually do this. They would hire professional mourners. They would, they would pay money to hire people that would come and weep and wail, that would tear their clothes and mourn. And they would play flutes, which I think caused everyone else to mourn as well, right? That's honestly, this is what they would do. And you would hire people to do this. They'd play their flutes and they'd weep and, oh, and cry out and they would rip their clothes. There's some cultures that still actually do this. And, and this is what they come upon. These people weeping and wailing loudly. In fact, um, the, the Talmud even, again, that Jewish interpretation of the law, speaks about how even the poorest Jew was required to hire a minimum of two, do you say a flautist? Is that how you say two flute players? And one wailer. That's what they were actually told. Even the poorest family was required to do that. And, and of course, think of Jairus. He's, well, he's a well-known man. He's, he's very well-known as ruler of the synagogue. He's very well-off financially. So this would be a very large crowd that is gathered. And verse 39, when he had entered Jesus, of course, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, this sounds a little bit strange, but you should know this. As a follower of Christ, death is, is the New Testament authors often describe it as sleep because our body sleeps, essentially, until the resurrection. Until the resurrection, uh, we are going to be resurrected with Christ. Our bodies will be resurrected up. The body sleeps, but the spirit, what does the spirit do? The spirit is gone to be with the Lord. That's what Paul wrote. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so he, Jesus says that, the child's just asleep. That's how they refer to death, as sleep. But notice what happens next in verse 40. What do they do? And they laughed at him. They go from lamenting to laughing. Shows you how sincere these guys were and women that were hired, right? They go from lamenting to laughing. Why did they laugh? They laughed because they're professionals. This was their job. They knew when somebody was dead, right? They knew this girl was dead and they begin to laugh. How can you say such a stupid thing? Sleeping, she's dead. And here's the reality. Whenever Jesus works a miracle, there will always be somebody that is mocking God, right? That is casting doubt. The problem is that many times, many times, if I'm honest, the, mir the, the, the doubter is within, right? The mocker sometimes is within. Sometimes it's our own doubts that can challenge our faith. And so many times people will Say to God things like, well, God, if you'll just do, and then you fill in the blank, then I'll believe. 
God, if you just do this, then I'll obey. <laughs> or God, if you only do this, then I'll, then I'll give or whatever, right? And we, we say, God, you need to prove it somehow, some way. But the reality is this. Miracles don't create faith. They confirm faith. Okay, miracles don't create faith. They confirm faith that is already present. Think of all the people who witnessed amazing miracles in the Bible, yet still walked away from God. Think of Israel, the nation of Israel. They, they witnessed some pretty fantastic miracles as they were delivered out of Egypt, did they not? They're getting chased by the Egyptians. They get to the Red Sea. They're stuck. What does God do? Parts the Red Sea. They cross through on dry land. The Egyptians start chasing after them. And he closes in the water over the Egyptians, drowns them all. They get to the other side. They sing a wonderful song. Wow, God's amazing. And then it's like the next day, they're like, oh, this sucks. We want to go back to Egypt. What? What did they just witness? These amazing miracles. And they continue to refuse to follow God. Another interesting example is in the book of John. I think it's in John chapter 6, I'm pretty sure. Jesus feeds the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And of course, we know that it's 5,000 men. Likely women and children are not inside that 5,000 number. So, I mean, this is a huge, huge amount of people that Jesus feeds with five loaves and two fish. And then we're told in the Gospel of John that after he feeds them, he gets in the boat and we're told that he crosses over the lake and, and, and the people are like, where'd he go? And they're looking around, where'd Jesus go? And it, it, they actually chase him down. It says in the Gospel of John, they find Jesus, they go and they find him. They're like, hey, why'd you leave? We're having a great time. The food, it was great. Right, and they chase him down and they actually ask him this question. Read it, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's John chapter six. Read it later. They're like, they're like what, what, what does God require of us? And Jesus basically tells them this. The requirement of God is this, that you would believe in me that I have been sent from God. And do you know what they say? They say this. They say, well, can you give us a sign so that we know that we can believe in you? These are the same people that were just fed with five loaves and two fish. Give us a sign, please. Do you see this? Miracles don't create faith. They confirm faith. And so when God wants to do something, here's the thing. You need to protect your faith. Look at what Jesus does next as verse 40 continues. So they laugh, they go from lamenting to laughing. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So he gets rid of the doubters. The mockers move out and what happens? Jesus moves in. This is, how, this is, this is why it is so important with who we surround ourselves with. Do we surround ourselves with people of faith? Or do we, do, do we surround ourselves rather with people that are cynical and doubters? Because I learned this way back in grade nine. I'll never forget that speaker at the New Spade camp that, that said this. Who you hang out with is who you'll become. Who you hang out with is who, you, who you'll become. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. And there's, there, it's, the same, it's with everything. I don't care how old you are, if you're a teenager or if you're in your 90s. It's the same thing. Who you hang out with is who you'll become. And so you need to surround yourself with people that, that guard your faith, that encourage your faith, 
Surround yourself with people that dig into the word, that sow to the spirit, that believe God. It's how we build our faith. Romans, Romans 10, 17 tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What are the people that you surround yourself with speaking about God, speaking about life and about faith? Because that's what's going to build your faith. Who are you listening to? Uh, do you want their faith? And I would encourage you to do this as well. Get into the word. Get into the word because remember, it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the size of your God. And so get to know God better and then your faith will be stronger. Your trust in him will be greater and stronger. As we close this morning, what have you come here today for? Why are you here this morning? Is it just to meet with other people? Are you here to meet with Jesus? Do you have an expectation that you're gonna meet with Jesus? What is it that you need to meet Jesus for today? Because here's the reality. When all else may fail you, Jesus never will. You know, what, what is it maybe in your life that's died that only Jesus can bring back? Yeah, I love how the, 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 the great evangelist, D.L. Moody, once he was, um, he was asked to speak at a funeral. And he thought, well, I'm going to use one of the Lord's funeral messages. You know what? He couldn't find one. He couldn't find a funeral message of the Lord. Why? Because he discovered that Jesus broke up every funeral he attended. Because Jesus has come with healing in his wings. And I want to encourage you this morning, reach out by faith. Touch the hem of his garment. Come to Jesus just as you are this morning. As Lynn and the team comes back up, I want us just to close in prayer just allowing ourselves to meet with Jesus today. Come expectantly with what it is that you need from the Lord. Can we close our eyes as we just prepare our hearts? Father, we're here this morning. And we recognize that, that, Lord, there are many things that we maybe put our faith in, many things that we trust in. And, Lord, I, I, don't, know, I don't know everybody's story here today. But what I know is this, is that no matter how poor you might be like this woman or how rich you might be like Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, no matter if you've suffered for 12 years with some sort of issue in your life or maybe... You're a child of 12 years. Isn't it interesting? God ties these people together and contrasts them. Lord, it doesn't matter who we are, what our circumstances or what our background is. You want to meet with each and every single one of us here this morning. And so, Lord, I pray right now, Jesus, I pray that faith would begin to rise. Jesus, that hearts would begin to turn to you, to look to you, Jesus whatever the need might be. God, we admit this morning that we need you. We can't do this life without you, Lord. As much as we try to put our strength and our faith in, in other things, other people, we need you. Father, I pray that this morning it would not be a last-ditch thing, that it would not be a last resort, but that, God, we would come to you first and foremost, right off the top. And here's our opportunity. 
This morning's our opportunity to do business with you, to come to you. And so, Lord, for those in this room this morning that need healing, I pray that they would begin to reach out by faith, that they would touch you, that they would know that they've heard the stories of how Jesus healed so-and-so and did this and that and raised that person from the dead and set that person free from this or that. Lord, I pray that they would reach out in the same kind of faith, that we would not be a people that just gather together and throng around you, but that we, we, come, that we would come expecting to meet with you, Jesus. And so, Lord, for those that need healing today, I pray healing in Jesus' name. Father, for those that are here this morning just with a brokenness in their life, an ache, a pain, Lord, you can meet that need as well. I pray, Father, that eyes would be upon you, that by faith we would reach out to you. That we'd know that you are here. God, if, if there's pride in our lives, that we would get over the pride and that we would just come to you, Jesus. If there's doubt, Father, I pray that you would help with our unbelief and rather change our eyes to see who you are, to see what you've done and what you want to do in us. So as we begin to sing this, this morning, I want to encourage you, whatever it would look like, that you would take time just to press into Jesus. We're going to take just five minutes, five minutes more to intentionally press into Jesus. And maybe you want to physically picture whatever your need is this morning and just grabbing onto that prayer shawl that was around him, saying, Lord, I need you. I need you. I'm not going to let go. I need you. Like Jacob wrestled with you, he would not let go until you blessed him. Lord, I pray that we'd be a people that would not let go, that we would hold on by faith to all that you have for us. So Lord, we picture these things. We bring them before you now as we begin to sing. Meet the needs, I pray, of your people this morning, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.